We are going to continue in Jude, and uh, we're going to cover a little bit of what we covered last week. Uh, we're starting to wind down on this letter. Uh, hey, Brennan, good morning. Uh, we're starting to wind down on this letter and the content, and um, as we've gone over this the past few weeks, Jude has really gone into Jude has really gone into uh, a, a threat an external threat that has made its way into the church in Jerusalem. And we've discussed that, that it's, this letter was a first century uh, letter to believers, most likely in Jerusalem and uh, the surrounding cities in Israel. And that Jude himself is the brother of, of Jesus and also the brother of James, who was uh, the elder of the church in Jerusalem. And that this family of Jesus, these relatives of Jesus, were the elders of Jerusalem for about 150 years. About 150, well, about 100 years total after the, uh, during the Bar Kokhba rebellion. So from 33 AD to about 135 AD, <coughs> excuse me, they were the elders in the, the church there. Um, after that, the uh, uh, Gentile uh, Christians in the area made a deal with the Romans, and they took over. Uh, but the last elder of the church in Israel... Uh, before the Bar Kokhba rebellion was Jude's great-grandson. And so we know that Jude's family uh, operated in the, the church there. They stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed with the Jewish community. Um, and one of the things that plagued them in the first century seems to be false teachers that have come in and they have said really blasphemous things. Uh, they deny Jesus. We've seen that. They deny the Messiahship of Jesus, and they also deny that, and through Jude's arguments, we see that they most likely denied the um, association of Jesus of Nazareth at all with the God of Israel and with the Jewish people coming out of the land of Egypt, which is one of the most pivotal events for the people of Israel, is the establishment of the people after the Egyptian captivity is all focused around what Moses did with the first and second generations that came out. So that really establishes the pattern for the nation for the next 1,400 years. Um, and even unto today, most Jewish people, they find their identity with the law of Moses, right? And so Jewish identity is very tightly knit. Even today, if you go to Brooklyn and talk to an ultra-Orthodox man, they'll talk about the identity with the law of Moses. Now they have a secondary identity as well that is wedded with that of oral laws that came from the Pharisaic party of the 3rd century B.C. or 2nd century B.C. up through the 1st century A.D. And so it seems to be that those are the groups that are coming in and contesting this because they don't want the Jewish community to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we know this is a bigger problem outside of Israel because Peter is writing similar content to Jews in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And so we know this is a bigger problem, and we also know that the Pharisees were not just confided to the nation of Israel. How do we know that? Who's the number one Pharisee that tried to stop the church outside the land of Israel? Paul, right? He was sent by the temple in Jerusalem, but he was not sent to the communities in Israel where was he knocked off his horse? On the way to Damascus, on the way to Syria, right? And he grew up just a couple, like 100, 150 miles northwest of there in Tarsus, which is southwest, uh, southeast Turkey, modern-day southeast Turkey. So we know, even by Paul's example, that the temple, as the religious hub 
for the Jewish community from Babylon, Persia, across to Greece, that was the religious hub, was Jerusalem. And that they would send teachers to correct false teaching in the synagogues outside the land of Israel. So we know this happened, and Paul was just the first of many. We know this, because they continued to send anti-missionaries. Even, even into rabbinic writings, we have examples of anti-missionary movements saying, don't trust the Christians. If you, turn, if you become a Christian, if you become a follower of Jesus, in the Talmud, they call him that man. If you've come to follow that man, you're no longer a member of this community. There's even prayers that, for Jewish people that if, they, if a Jewish man comes to faith in Jesus, the prayer is, may, and I hate to be graphic, but may his foreskin be reattached. So he is so exiled from the Jewish community. If you believe in this, may you be as a Gentile. You're no longer part of our people. That's how serious they took this, is may he be reattached. Now, if, if they associate, now think about this, church, those rejections, if they're that strong into the 4th and 5th century of saying, may he be like the Gentiles, what did the early Jewish community associate Gentiles with? Was it just Jesus? No, it was a collection of all pagan thought. Anything not monotheistic. So what did they associate Jesus with? Paganism, right? Just bad doctrine, right? And it was so bad that if you were Jewish and you came to believe in that, may you be thrown out of the community and be treated as a pagan. That's how serious they took this. But in the first century with Jude, they're trying to infiltrate and bring them back. There's so many people coming to faith that it seems that, including Paul, they had to send emissaries from the temple abroad, from the, 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 uh, uh, the Sanhedrin Gadol, the, the great Sanhedrin. Sorry, I was trying to think of the, the big phrase. The Sanhedrin Gadol, the 71 men. They sent him abroad with a writ, saying he's here to correct the teaching. This comes from us in Jerusalem. And so if that's happening abroad, imagine how intense it is for these people in Jerusalem pretty strong, right? And so Jude is writing a letter, not just to his immediate community, but also to the surrounding believers in Israel, right? So before we get into that and where we left off with, uh, with Enoch last week, the book of Enoch and the, the idea of the book of Enoch and this prophecy, um, I'm going to go back to an example I used a couple of weeks ago. And you'll have to follow me here on how this, this uh, correlates back. But uh, does everyone remember this picture from a couple weeks ago? So the man on the left, his name is Toshiro Nagato, and this is Masaki Hatsumi. And one thing that I was mentioning is that Nagato-sensei, he is right here, he's 75 years old, and Hatsumi-sensei right here is about 91, 92. And this man has been a disciple, a deshi, a disciple of him for about a half century. So he's sat under his teacher for a half century. And I kind of alluded to, you know, it's a, when you take on the role of a disciple in Japan, and this is not just true of martial arts, this is anything in Japan. You want to learn traditional Japanese pottery, you will sit under your teacher for life. They'll certify you to open your own pottery shop, but you will sit under your sensei for life. And the word sensei, we associate it with dojos and Cobra Kai and all these TV shows and that sort of thing, but really the, the word is used in universities, it's used in public school it means the generation who came before. So your teacher is always called sensei. So when you're in a public school and you're in your history class and your teacher is Toyota, last name Toyota, your teacher is Toyota sensei. 
So it's a really common phrase, and it's come through from the pre-1867 Japan of sitting under the generation that came before, quite literally, the one who came before, the correct one before. And he has sat under his teacher. Now, he has full transmission of this art that he has inherited from his teacher. And it goes back generations and generations and generations. Now, part of that learning in art or learning any kind of knowledge, passing of knowledge in a traditional sense, and I'm gonna, this is true in the West as well. This is not just a Japanese thing. Uh, this is just an illustration. But if you think of the guilds of the Middle Ages and stuff, it's the exact same is that the knowledge is actively passed from one teacher to the student, teacher to the student, teacher to the student. So the knowledge is actively passed, and it's not always fun. So this is Nagato when he is in his probably late 20s. Hatsumi-sensei looks very happy. He's passing knowledge, and if you can believe it, this guy, when you ask him about it, he enjoyed every minute of it. He says it was painful, but I enjoyed it. And he adopted him as an adopted son. So when Nagato-sensei's father passed, Hatsumi informally said to him, don't worry, I'll be your dad from here on out. Now, Nagato was in his 40s when that happened. But Hatsumi says, I'll continue to bring you up because I've been doing it anyway, right? I'm your teacher. Here's another picture. So in this one, he's getting thrown with a chain. <laughs> he's still having fun. He kind of has a smile, but his feet are up here, right? So, so you're, you actively learn any trade, right? You, you sit under the teacher, you actively learn. What he learned is actively transmitted to you, okay? So you have a teacher-student relationship all the way down. Hatsumi-sensei went through the same thing. This is pictures from the 60s. I had to dig these up in old, old pictures. But here he is with his teacher, Takamatsu-sensei. And here's Hatsumi, the guy throwing the guy around. So, happy man back here. This is him when he's in his early or late 20s, early 30s under his teacher. And you can see his teacher's pretty old. Right here, uh, Sensei's probably in his 70s. And he sat under him for 15 years before Takamatsu's passing. And you actively learn. So they actively learn from one generation. It's taught to the next, Right? And here they're doing empty hand. Here they're doing uh, weapons-related stuff. And there's one other thing that comes with this transmission, and it's really, that's what they call it in Japanese, is din, a transmission. You have the active transmission, and they call that taiden, when you, when you transmit from the body. So what you're doing, even in pottery, the, the, mo the, the motions you do to make the pottery, the person should copy that and learn from it. Right, so that they can duplicate it, replicate it later. But then there's one other aspect of this transmission that people overlook, and especially if you practice any kind of uh, modern uh, martial art, it does not have this. So uh, modern karate, modern sport, judo, MMA, none of that has this. And it's this. What are they doing here? Are they training? Looks like they're looking at a book, right? This is the other aspect, I'm losing my mic here, give this one second. This is the other aspect of den, when you train from teacher to student. And again, with ikebana flower arranging, pottery, sword making, metalwork, traditional carpentry, there's actual schools of how to build buildings, 
with the old, uh, do people like tongue and groove in here? Tongue and, or uh, what am I thinking? Post and beam? Yeah, yeah, mortise and tenon. There's schools for that. But guess what the other aspect of the knowledge passing is? Something's passed in writing. Why is that so important? Why is that so important? Because some of these arts are generations old. Some of the arts that, that this man had, that gave to this man, they exceed 900 years. They're 911. One is 12, almost 1,200 years old and goes back to China. So in order to make sure that what is done from generation to generation, okay, physically, there has to be a check from generation to the next, and that's the transmission documents. And every school has this. So here are Sensei's eight successors. So he has nine traditions. He has eight men that are receiving them. Uh, Noguchi Sensei here, he's 80 years old. He's been with him for 50 years. This is Nagato that you saw with the feet in the air. Here, this, is, this was just taken a few months ago. Um, Ishizuka Sensei has been with him for almost 60 years. So some of these men have been, been there for 50, 60 years. And they have each succeeded one of these traditions. But to make sure that they pass the same thing that he received from his teacher, so here is his teacher in 1919. This is a really old picture. This was 100, 100 and some years, 102 years, 103 years ago. So this is Takamatsu on the left. Right here, he's 30. He's 30 years old. But to make sure that it looks like this. Now, I had to take these pictures and push them together, okay? This is Takamatsu in 1919. This is Ishizuka that's been with Hatsumi 60 years in 2019. You see how identical it is? See the alignment and what they're doing is identical? To make sure that happens, and this is exactly a century apart. That's why I pulled these. To make sure that happens and that, to make sure that the knowledge that someone acquired, in this case from a battlefield, is passed accurately, they have this. These are called densho, which are books, literally transmission books, and makimono. So there's people who love sushi. People eat sushi in here? You know, maki, like the, the rolled up sushi, that means scroll, literally, something rolled up. So makimon are scrolls. So even in the practice, even with non-believers, this is what I'm getting at, church, even with the practice of old traditions and knowledge passing, what keeps things in check? Written word. written word, that which is written down, right? And these documents, even if the new soke, the new uh, headmaster, receives these documents on a new copy that's been copied, the grammar is old. Some of this stuff's written in ancient Chinese that modern Chinese can't even understand. So we know that the tradition's old because the grammar is like 12th century Chinese or 9th century Chinese that has come into Japan, and then you have old period Japanese from, one, from the Kansai region of southern Japan. So we know from a grammatical standpoint that the art is old. But the active knowledge, combined, what you're actively getting taught combined with the written word is what validates if one of these students is making something up or following in the traditions correctly. So you may have a student who makes something up. How do you validate if what they're doing is made up versus something in the tradition? You have to look at this, and you have to look at the example, right? And you validate whether or not this guy is making something up. This is really important because it must pass the smell test of the writings of the school, literally the flow of thought. That's why they call them ru. and literally means flow. A school in Japan is always called a ru. And it means like flow of thought. There's too much of a risk of false teaching sneaking in. 
There's too much of a risk. Humans will mess it up. And uh, even with the honor-driven samurai class, they would mess this up. So the headmaster of anything was the one with the absolute uh, teaching, most teaching from the previous generation. And typically, only the headmaster will have everything. So students of this school may have just this document, but he doesn't have these. These, are, these may be philosophy documents. He may have how to do something. But then the headmaster will also have this document, these documents back here that may discuss more aspects about the world view of the school. So even in this tradition, there's one generation that has to harbor the knowledge. And he has everything. And they call this uh, Ishi Soden. It means the complete transmission of a school's uh, ideas to one heir. So other people could have a lot of the knowledge, but there's always one person that will get it. So back in this picture, each of these men, with the exception of this guy, he inherited two. Each one of these guys has the full gambit of a tradition. The rest of them have all practiced it. But this guy is considered the true disciple of one school. This guy is considered the true disciple of another school. The two people I train with here, they are, they are the true recipients of one of the other schools. They may have a lot of the information from these other ones, but they're the ones expected to carry on that singular one, and they've been handed that single generation. Now, how does this... So we have this idea of literary having to keep what's going on functionally in check, even amongst the non-believers. This is... This is this is a common thing in the ancient world. We have this in, if you think about this idea, hang on just one second, I'm losing my, my glasses or messing with the mic here. If you have this idea, even in the West, if you think about the time of the Renaissance when you had guilds, and we still have some guilds today, where you study under what? There's actually a word for it. What do we call it? You study under a master, a master tradesman, right? You sit under a master tradesman, when I was in trade school, I sat under master tradesmen, and I get my trade degree, but I'm not a master tradesman until what? I take on students. Then you're, pa then you're at the stage where you can pass the knowledge. And we have institutions for that in the West, just like in the East, they have institutions for that. But this traditional passing of knowledge is typically from a senior teacher to a new student, and there's always something that keeps the knowledge in check. So someone who is really good at post and beam doesn't build a building that'll fall over, right? There has to be something in check. It's no different with the scriptures and the teachers. From one generation to the next, teachers are called to teach, but is our knowledge secret? Does it have to be passed from one generation, one generation to one person? Is the knowledge held secret or is it sitting in the pew in front of you? In a Bible-believing church, right, this is the, what the Reformation really got at is don't withhold the written information to see if someone's doing something wrong. Every believer has access to this. And for Jude's uh, church body, they had access to the scriptures, and he has been using scriptures to encourage the fact that what these guys are coming in and teaching falsely can be validified as false against the scriptures. So here's one example of a orally passed tradition up to Jude that had to pass the smell test against that which was written. And we covered this last week. So, behold, Adonai, or the Lord, has come with myriads of his holy ones to make judgment according to all and to convict all the irreverent ones concerning all their works of irreverence, 
which they profanely did, and concerning all the harsh things the reverend sinners have spoken against him. So we talked about this uh, verbal aspect of uh, has come being a past tense, but it's in a future event to show the, the, the uh, validity and concreteness of this coming to pass. And uh, we also talked about how this is common in uh, Hebrew language. This happens a lot. But this quote of Enoch, we had to go last, last time we were together and validify whether or not a book of Enoch is the source data for this. Or does it follow, does this prophecy follow the smell test against Scripture? And according to Jude and his own uh, teachings, one, he validifies it against his own teachings, but then two, if we just look at the, the scriptures of, as far as the person of Enoch, we know this. So we, we, we bring in this oral teaching coming in, and we understand these things about Enoch from scripture. So before we even look at the prophecy, we validify the man, right? So we know he walked with God his whole life. This is mentioned twice by Moses. He didn't have many days on the earth. We know that, that he was taken up into heaven. He's the great-grandfather of Noah. Noah, his great-grandson, calls himself to walk in his generations with God as well. So we know that, that Noah was a righteous man as well. And he's not described, this is according to Genesis, he was not described with Vayamot, and he died in the biblical text. When we look at the New Testament for the person of Enoch, so these are other prophets. What do other prophets say about Enoch? The writer of Hebrews says that his testimony is that he pleased God. Hebrews is that he also says that he had faith. And this is where we get that without faith it is impossible to please God. It's talking about Enoch and then later Noah. They're the, they're the men described on either side of without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews also confirms that he didn't die. He, Hebrews openly says that what it means in Genesis when it says God took him, lakach, like took him into himself, it means that he didn't die. But then Jude says this, in light of all of this, Jude also affirms, as a prophet, Jude is a, Jude is a prophet as well, he's giving a prophetic writing, he says Enoch was a prophet. So we have at least three prophets at this point validifying the person of Enoch, right? You have Jude, we have the writer of Hebrews, and who's the third prophet? Moses, right? In the Torah, he's validifying Enoch as a righteous man. So when we get to the prophecy itself, that prophecy has come down through, protected, and by the providence of God, it's a mystery, but from the ancient world, through the saints and through the prophets, to Jesus, passed to eventually his little brother Jude, who finally writes it down and, and says, look, Everything we know about Enoch is true. This was passed to me by the apostles and my brother and by the prophets themselves. It's not been written down. But what I'm telling you, church, about false teachers and you as saints and the Lord, Enoch said the same thing. Here it is. And that's where we sat. And so from that, we know that other Jewish literature took that prophecy and made it bigger. So every example we have, it's bigger and more elaborate. It's not more simple. It's bigger and that Ridley Scott made millions of dollars out of it, right? And so we talked about that, that the movie Noah, if you saw that in 2013 or 14, that's mostly based upon this rabbinic work, this, this uh, Second Temple Jewish work of uh, the Book of Enoch, Book of First Enoch, which is a compilation of several books. So this can be pushed off to the side because we know that it's, by all principles of literature, it has been embellished. 
But what we have from Jude is Jude validifying everything that the other biblical writers say about Enoch as a man, that he is in God's favor. He has the same end-of-life experience as Elijah, where he's taken into heaven, and that he had one prophecy, and it was this short one, but it's actually what Jude is talking about. So when we come back to this, this starts to add a better context for Enoch. And we have to look at this because we're going to go into verse 16. So we have Adonai, the Lord. Who, did, who does Jude say the Lord is? Who's the one who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt? Jesus, thank you. The Lord has come with myriads of his holy ones. Who are his holy ones, according to Jude? The saints, right? To convict all the irreverent ones. Who does that also encompass for Jude? The false teachers sneaking into the church. So there's irreverent ones that he's given in Sodom, Gomorrah, the ancients. But then he also says, these irreverent ones coming in are in this category. And Enoch saw it at the time of the ancients. What did he see? He saw the Lord the physical manifestation of God that appeared to Moses and led Israel out of Egypt, that same Adonai, coming with saints, and he's going to judge the irreverent ones. So Enoch, I always love telling people, Enoch saw you. If you're a believer, Enoch saw you. (laughs) And we know the irreverent ones because in verses 4 and 5, we establish who the Lord is, when Jude factors Enoch's prophecy into his letter, he's, he's validifying the demographics of his own statements. So follow me here. Here's the irreverent ones in verse 4. Who are they? The people changing the grace of our God into licentiousness. And what do these irreverent ones also do? We just said this at the beginning. They deny the master. Who's the master? Jesus Christ, right? And also we know that Jesus is... God who led them out of Egypt, right? According to verse 5, Kyrios is uh, Jesus, Yeshua, and Yeshua is the Kyrios that led them out of Egypt. What does it say in verse 3? Beloved, agapetoi, right? Making due diligence to write to you concerning the common salvation. We're going to look at that in the common faith. To struggle and contend earnestly for the faith that has been delivered once to the the Holy Ones. You see these three demographics? They match this on purpose. According to Jude, he, he says, what Enoch said, I'm saying. We have three demographics here. I'm talking about them, so did Enoch. Really important, because when you get into verse 16, okay, I want you to follow me with this word. This is really important. He says, these are grumblers. So, the irreverent ones, the ones that God is going to judge according to Enoch's prophecy that was just mentioned, says these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own, in some of your translations, and maybe the Pew Bible will say lusts, I believe, in the NASB. We're going to look at that. It says they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Okay? So Now, why did I translate um, epithemias. Why did I translate that as desires and not lusts? How do we normally, in modern English, what do you normally associate with lust? Sexual, Sexual lust, right? This epithemias, and we're going to look at this, is much broader than, as you put, the reductionist view of it just being sexual desire. Okay? 
A lot of translators of Jude revert to that because of the stories that he gives and the accounts of the, uh, the ancients, right? The, the crossbreeding of angels with humans, the violence that comes about as a result. But this is much broader, and it's not always bad, okay? We're going to look at what he's defining here as their own desires, and that's really important, is that this is a possessive. This is their own desires. So where else, I want, I want to look at where does epithemia, this desire, passion, longing, show up in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, okay? So we're going we're gonna to break away from 16, and I want you to look at this. So if you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 22. And we've probably read this our whole lives, and those of you that uh, have a Greek New Testament will probably see this plain as day. So Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. So we're talking about Jesus and Luke's account of Pesach, of Passover. So this is the Last Supper. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired, you see that? To eat this Pesach, this Passover, with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom, and never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, if I were to just take, if I were to just take a, a wooden translation of epithemia, okay, and apply it across the entirety of the New Testament, would it make sense to say, for Jesus to say, I have, and I'm sorry, to, I don't mean to sound blasphemous, I truly don't, I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. That doesn't make any sense, right? How this is actually worded, though, church, in, in Greek, is literally with epithemia, I have desired. So with the noun, I have desired in the verb form. Does that make sense? So it's doubled up. It says, with this, I desire. So with desire, I desire, which we translate, I have earnestly desired. But that means Jesus really, 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 really wanted to celebrate this Passover. Is there anything vindictive in Jesus' statement here? Absolutely not, right? He's saying, I've longed for this for a very long time. With desire, I have desired. I have always wanted this. Is there vindictiveness in these guys? Absolutely, right? They have their own desires, but what are the desires focused around? Speaking arrogantly, you see this? Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's, the, that's clarifying what the desires are. It's desires toward evil things that make this a problem. You see that? Let's look at another example. Matthew 13. Go to Matthew 13. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. And this is really important with when we're talking about knowledge transmission. You're going to see this show up in the, the text in the epistles in just a minute. So Jesus is talking to the 12 here, verses 16 and 17. He says, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And they're asking him, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? And why do you speak to us plainly? 
He says, For truly I say to you that many prophets, and he's talking to the twelve, many prophets and righteous men, so the Old Testament prophets and men of righteousness like Enoch, desired to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Does that mean when it says desire, that's the same word? When it says that desire, does that mean that these men vindictively lusted after this? No, they longed for it. They burned for it. What the 12 were getting as a teaching from God in the flesh, those who came before them wished they had. Everyone up until that point, including John the Baptist, wished they could have sat under what the 12 were getting. You see that? He says these men longed for it. It's almost like the 12 had no idea how in-depth the teaching they were receiving was and how plain it was in relation to the parables. Because Jesus gives them, right after this, he gives them clarification on the parable of the sower. So Jesus gives the parable of the sower to the masses, and then he tells the apostles what it means. And, but there, it seems to be exclusive to them. Because why, why is it to them? Who's expected to go out and spread his message when he leaves? These men, right? These men. It'll go to the 12 tribes of Israel from them. It will go to the Gentiles from them, right? He's setting them up. And he says, people longed for this, but you're getting it. Here's the meaning of the parable of the sower. This is really important because to desire is not wrong as long as you desire for the right things. (laughs) The scriptures support this. If you desire this, if you desire to be one of the 12 or in my opinion, in my, in my case, I desire to be one of the two men on the road to Emmaus. I wish I could have sat or walked as guy number three, the fly on the wall that got to hear what the other two heard and then just go my own way because it says he explained to the entire prophets to them about how the Messiah had to suffer. So on this long walk, you get literally an education beyond any seminary from he who wrote the scriptures through the prophets. The one who led Israel, according to Jude, led Israel out of Egypt, is actually talking to them, explaining every piece of it. That kind of exclusivity, according to Jesus right here, is rare. He only did it a couple of times, and only with a handful of people, because what did he expect out of those people? They are to share it. There is no exclusivity moving forward. You share it with everybody, but I'm setting you guys up first. Now, on the negative side, so this is still epithemia, okay? On the negative side, how does Jude utilize it in the negative sense? And is it validified, that word, that Greek word, is it validified with any Hebrew context in the Torah? We have to ask this. Romans 7. So if you're in your Bibles, turn to Romans 7. We're going to look at Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. And I hope, I hope this like unlocks the, gives you the aha moment. I hope I've done my job here. This is Romans 7, 7 and 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the Torah. For I would not have known about epithemia. Now in this sense, what is it talking about? How is it translated? To negatively covet. You see that? To covet after your neighbor's goods, to covet after your neighbor's wife, as it talks about in the Torah. And we know that because Paul cites the beginning of the mitzvah, right? For I not know about coveting, 
this burning after something wrong, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see that? This is the negative desire. And there's clarification, and Paul says there's clarification in the Torah as to what you should not long after. Okay? So it gives clarity here. But sin, taking the opportunity through the mitzvah, through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So you don't understand sin until you understand what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, right? But how do they translate right here? How do they render epithemia? Coveting, right? To covet. Is this kind of longing wrong? No, right? This is God-glorifying longing. The kind of longing described that you're not supposed to do in the Torah is wrong. You see that? Do the men of Jude long after something that they shouldn't have? Absolutely. That's what sets the clarity right here of these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own desires. And according to Jude, the people that do this and speak arrogantly and, and are sycophantic, they flatter people for the sake of their own gaining of an advantage. You know where the word sycophant comes from? We use that a lot in English. It's actually a Greek term. It means a person who shakes the tree. We think of a sy- sycophant as someone who what? You, you kiss up to somebody, right, to gain an advantage. So, so you, you, you're kissing up, right? The idea was in ancient Greece that you shook the person as a tree until the fruit fell that you wanted. So literally, in Greek, it was, oh, that guy's a tree shaker. He'll come up to you and he'll, he'll tell you whatever you need in order to get what he wants. And he'll, he'll shake the tree until the fruit falls out. That can be negatively, or that can also be, in the Greek court, it could also be that you shook the tree if you were the prosecutor until you forced a confession out of somebody which is usually how it was used in old times, was you shook the person until they, like you, you, you rattled them until they gave you the fruit that you wanted. And it came to be that when we say somebody is sycophantic, that they actually shake the tree, and it may mean that they flatter you to get the fruit they want. And so these guys right here, are they doing that? Of course. And then they speak from an arrogant standpoint. Now, we have to ask ourselves, is this a problem that is particular to the false teachers that Jude is encountering? Okay? So this map, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. And Jude, and this is the ancient Jewish diaspora, okay? So before they moved into Europe, before the temple was destroyed, and Jews were taken as slaves into the German lands, which became the Ashkenazi populace, this would be all Jews, including including the ones in Israel, and... um, so we have here first century, and we know Jude's writing to this group down in here, right? However, Peter is writing to Jews up there in West Turkey. What is now West Turkey? What does Peter say? Peter gives a reminder, and pay close attention here, a reminder, and then a warning, Okay? Now, this is really important. So he says in 1 Peter 3, now, now 2 Peter 2, we established that he's talking about false teachers with the same examples as Jude, right? 2 Peter 3, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the words spoken beforehand. That's really important. By who? The holy prophets and the, the mitzvah, the commandment of, our, of the Lord and Savior by your apostles, of which he is one. What was the teaching from the apostles? Pay close attention here. This is their central teaching that he's talking about that he's given them. And also the prophets have given this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own pithemia, desires, and saying, and here's what they'll say. Listen to how arrogant this is. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the patriarchs fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's a pretty strong statement. Would a Roman priest care about this? To a bunch of Jewish believers? Who's coming to them and saying this? The successors of Paul. The ones saying, you say he's coming back, where is he? Everything sits as normal. And you say he's coming back. You see that? This, they're following after this desire. And here's Epithemius. What does Jude say? Verse 16, he talks about their own desires. Verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own desires of irreverence. You see the repeat terms? Following after their own desires of irreverence. And these mockers between Peter and uh, Jude are both uh, impikatai. So uh, uh, they're both the same exact word, mockers or scoffers, naysayers. These are the ones, now this is really important, church. These are the ones who cause divisions. So they're out to cause what? We've already established they're sycophantic. They speak arrogantly. Um, They'll be tree shakers to get the things that they want, the fruit that they want. But it says they also cause divisions, right? They're worldly-minded. And your pew Bible may say uh, not being in the Spirit or something along those lines. It literally is don't possess the Spirit. The Spirit they do not have. They do not have the Spirit. So devoid of, oh, devoid of the Spirit. That's what, yeah, it's a very, it's a, I think it's a weaker statement because it literally says they don't have it. They don't have the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, Jude reminds them of who they are. The beloved, the, the agapatoi. Right? But you, Agapitoi, and he keeps saying this, Agapitoi, Agapitoi, he said this in verse 3. But you, Agapitoi, beloved, building yourselves up, and it says, in your most holy faith. This is really important because this uh, most holy, this term, this hagiotate, uh, uh, yours, peace day, your, your faith, is a superlative. It's like a very intense form, the most intense form. It's most holy, most sacred in your most holy faith, praying in what? Now, what do they not have? What do the false teachers not have? The Spirit. What is he telling them they have? You pray in the Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, which he already established at the beginning of the letter they have, 
waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You see that? Okay, so the most holy faith has, some, has something to do with what? Jesus Christ and what? Eternal life, okay? The question is, what is that epicenter that he's talking about? What's the epicenter of the most holy faith? What is the thing they have to hold on to in light of worldly-minded leaders coming in saying, where is Jesus? You keep saying that he's going to come. Where is he? The world functions as normal. They're actually trying to get, it, get them to die even the resurrection of Jesus. The world functions as normal. Everybody's dead. Everybody that's ever lived has died. That's what they're saying. It's not true, but that's what they're saying. This is the, and I want you to follow me here because this is both written and transmitted. Okay? Written and transmitted. And you're going to see this. Paul has already done this once in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for I delivered to you what I received, right, around the Last Supper, the bread and the wine. But look what he says around 1 Corinthians 15, the epicenter of the most holy faith. For I, and this is him talking to the Gentiles, right, of Corinth. For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to what? That which was written. And that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to that which was written. Who did he receive it from? The twelve. When Paul came to faith, who had to nurture him up? Jesus' followers. And then he had to go study says he went and studied for three years. You see that? And, he, and so he gets what he received, but he says it's in that which is written. The prophets affirmed it. And that he appeared to Kepha, which is Peter, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. But then he appeared to Jacob, so Jude's older brother, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we should preach, and so you believed. What's his epicenter? If someone had to ask you what the core of your faith is today, what do you tell them? The Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, died according to the Scriptures. That he was buried according to the Scriptures. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. When they ask you why that needed to happen, tell them why. According to the scriptures. It's why we have that which is written in front of us today. It's why scripture has survived. It's why divine revelation and writing is so important. The prophets taught in person and received oracles that were relayed in person, but that which needs to go to future generations is put where? In the scriptures. Where does Jude tell his people to look? to the scriptures, to the Torah. 
Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So you can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead and not believe that there's a future resurrection of the dead because you have people rising from the dead. There's a comedic YouTube video that says, I get what you're saying about this guy. It's a comedic cartoon that goes, okay, I'm following you now. You're saying there's no resurrection of the dead because you're depleting all the examples of people rising from the dead and so, to an atheist. And so it, I'm, I'm, they're saying, I'm following what you're doing here. And it's, it, Paul's saying the same argument. If one person rose from the dead, then there is proof of a resurrection of the dead. But some of them are saying there's not. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even the Messiah has been raised, and if Jesus, if the Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also in vain. Because the epicenter is Jesus rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised the Messiah. He raised Christ whom he did not raise, according to these people. If, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The epicenter of our faith that, we, that says we are not in our sins anymore is Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried according to the Scriptures, he is the suffering servant that was raised on the third day according to the scriptures as proof of the resurrection of the dead. What is Jude telling them to remember? What was transmitted to them from the apostles. And Paul says this is the transmission of first importance. Even more so, you can't get to the communion example in 1 Corinthians 11 unless you can at least admit this. Because without Christ dying and rising from the dead, what's the point of him instituting a new covenant in the upper room? It is blood. This is the first importance. In areas of importance, it's important, but he's talking about it chronologically. I need to address this with you guys. Remember this epicenter. You see that? And Jude says, hang on to your most holy faith. Where does that most holy faith find its central confession? In this confession, for which we will be judged hopefully to the good, that he was raised on the third day. It's exactly what the false teacher said didn't happen. You say, where is he? Where is he? He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. Where is he? And they say there's no proof of the resurrection of the dead. And if these are, think about this, church. If these are leaders sent from Jerusalem saying this, they are actually doing what Jude says. They are reverting to blasphemy because there is examples of people being raised from the dead in the Old and the New Testament. Did Elijah bring people back to life? Yes. Did Jesus bring people back to life? Yes. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. He's the firstborn amongst many brethren. He is the Pesach, he's the, he's the, and he's the firstfruits, the first to rise. This has to be at the center of our confession. Otherwise, we go off the rails, and you will fall into false teaching. And all false teachers try to pull you away from which confession? Sorry to be redundant, which one? Ultimately, they try to get you back to denying the first importance. But Jesus is not the Messiah and everything that that entails. This is what Jude's telling them to hold on to. 
If you keep this, when the false teacher comes in, you'll know something doesn't sound right. And these guys are in this other camp. They're not part of the holy ones. They're part of the irreverent ones. And it goes all the way back. This Jesus is the one who led the people out of Egypt. This Jesus is the one who gave revelations and came down and spoke to the prophets when God appeared in physical form. This Jesus is the one who raises people from the dead. This Jesus is the one who can lay down his life and take it up again. If you don't have that, you walk into irreverence. In teaching, base teaching. This is not chaotic violence. That's, what t- that's a byproduct of it. This is the base of walking away from the teaching. You see that? That which is taught... Even what I tell you today has to be validified where? In that which is written. That's not my responsibility. That's yours. I'll tell you something, and hopefully it's right, but ultimately it has to be validified by you. And you have to study. Oh, that was my last slide, so let's pray. Lord, let us remember the epicenter of our faith. Let us remember what the prophets prophesied about, Lord, the suffering servant that you're going to be, the coming king that you're going to be, the kingdom that you're going to set up, and the, and the, the wonderfulness that it will be when you get to celebrate Passover again with us in Jerusalem as you promised in Luke. And Lord, that we know what that means. We know that the Torah was supposed to be a tutor to bring us to to you. It was meant to be temporary. That covenant at Sinai was meant to be temporary. It said in itself it was meant to be temporary to bring us to this wonderful thing that you are. It set Israel up with revelation to understand who you are. And prophets came after Moses that said it too. And you even came down and told us that they wrote about you and that you had come to fulfill what they had to say. Lord, let us understand how deep this faith is and how earnestly we have to chase after, no matter what our life circumstance is, Lord, that we have to chase after this central confession and find it from the early chapters of Genesis up through your statements in Revelation 22 where you are the root and the offspring of David. We have to understand what that means. You've called us to study. Be with us, Lord. Let us pray in your Holy Spirit that we possess as followers of Christ. And I ask you to guide us in wisdom and illuminate us to your scriptures so that we can identify that which is true against that which is false. I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.